Hello and welcome to the second series of Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Cheresky. Back in season one of Ocean Matters, we took on a whirlwind tour of the watery world. Beneath and above the waves, there is loads going on and there was loads to explore. From sharks to seabirds, coral reefs to climate change, we looked at lots of the different cogs in the ocean engine that keep our planetary systems running. And it's great that it's been appreciated. In the time we've been away, Ocean Matters went and won a Webby Award. So thank you very much to everyone who voted for us. And we're also now in the planning stages for season three. And this time, we are going to be out and about much more in the world, exploring some of the biggest ocean stories from a truly global perspective. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. So we're doing things a little bit differently for this one. We'll be featuring longer conversations with people working on important ecosystems or familiar and endangered species to understand the bigger picture for the ocean before we really gear up for season three. So let's get started. And our topic for this week is eels. Now, these might not win the awards for the most adorable species, but they have a lot in their favour. I promise you, the more you find out about eels, the more fascinating they get. They're quite unbelievable, even on the scale of the surprises that nature can throw at us. There are 16 species of eels and close to home here in the UK, the European eel is the one that we might see around. Now, eels are interesting because humans would mostly come across them in rivers and coastal areas. But the European eel starts its life way out in the open ocean, far, far away from land, out in salt water, and it migrates back thousands of miles towards estuaries, up the estuaries into the freshwater, and that's where they spend a large part of their lives. And so they have to survive in both freshwater and saltwater, and they need to navigate to take on these enormous journeys. It really is an extraordinary achievement. <laughs> it's, a, it's an extraordinary natural phenomenon. So as they travel between these two systems, this species encounters pretty much all the water-based problems that we humans create. Although that also makes the conservation question is quite difficult because there are so many places where we could potentially harm their life cycle. It also makes them a flagship species for water conservation because if we can get it right for the eels, we can get it right for everything else. Now, you tend to find that the eel enthusiasts are very, very enthusiastic and one of them is Dr Matt Gollock from the Zoological Society of London. So we had a chat about the eel's impressive journey and the threats that they're facing. But of course, we had to start with the most important question. How did you get to study this really elusive creature? I tend to be drawn to the underdog species that are perhaps not so loved by lots of people. I sort of feel like I want to fight their corner. I mean, I sort of became interested in eels and particularly the European eel by accident, where it was just happened to be the focal species of a PhD that I applied for. But within a couple of months, I was just completely sort of besotted with them. I mean, there's a huge amount of mystery about them. There's so much we don't know about them, which is kind of amazing. And I still, having studied them for over 20 years, still find it absolutely incredible. I think the eel is one of the best examples in some ways of how our society underestimates animals that don't look pretty. It's very easy to admire an animal which is strong and beautiful and has big eyes, but that is not an eel. So just let's start at the beginning. Describe to us what an eel looks like. 
I mean, I'd immediately disagree with the fact that they're not pretty. I think they're gorgeous animals, but, you know, I am biased. Convince um, me. Convince <laughs> me. <laughs> so, eels are fish, for anyone that doesn't know that, but they're not classical fish shape, which, you know, you'd think of when you maybe think of a salmon or a trout or something like that. They're long and thin, and I think that's where a bit of their yuck factor comes from, is that, you know, they definitely have a sort of snake-like appearance. But, I mean, when you look at them, they look about 80% tail and then... 20% head. So they've got two small fins at the front. They have a long dorsal fin going along the back. But what people will maybe notice is a clear demarcation in the colour and that they tend to be a darker colour on the back and a lighter colour on the belly. And we think both in the freshwater form and the marine form that this is sort of a way to camouflage themselves from predators. Well, let's get to the sort of the visual imagery here. So an adult eel, a big one, how big is a big eel? When we're talking about the European eel, I think some of the biggest ones have been over five kilograms. But some of the other species, um, in New Zealand species, the longfin eel, for example, they can be over 10 kilos and they're absolutely enormous. And the, the larger ones are always the females. So there's a difference between the males and the females. The males, certainly for the European eel, tend to be smaller than about 40 centimetres in length maybe 45 centimetres, but the females are always the larger ones. I mean, length, they can get over a metre, and I would say diameter, you're probably looking at about 10 centimetres, something like that. So they tend to sort of grow outwards as well as longwards. So a big part of eel's growth is putting on fat, and this is to basically fuel the large migration they have across the ocean to where they breed. For the European eels, which are the ones we might see here in Britain, if I wanted to go eel spotting and I recognise that they're hard to spot, where would I go? What sort of environments would I find them in? I mean, that's one of the amazing things about eels is that they will live most places that are extremely tolerant to poor water conditions. So anything that's, you know, low oxygen, even polluted, they can survive in those conditions. Now, that doesn't mean that they love it there, but they are extremely tolerant to these conditions. You can find them in rivers, in lakes, in ditches, in marshlands. You can find them both in salt and freshwater. So you might find them in estuaries or coastal waters. I would say if you're going looking for them, then nighttime is best because generally they'll be hidden away in mud or little holes in the banks until they come out at night, which is when they tend to feed. Now, anyone listening to this is probably at this point in game, but this is an ocean podcast and here you are talking about rivers. But the brilliant thing about eels is their life cycle because it encompasses almost all the water on the planet in a way and that they can travel the ocean and they can travel the rivers. So their life history is quite a tale. So let's begin at the beginning. Where are they born, these eels? One of the things that I find amazing about them is the mystery and this idea of where are eels born is still something that despite over a hundred years of, of exploration in some cases, it's still quite difficult to answer. So we know that most species or all the species will be breeding in the open ocean somewhere. Now, if we take the European eel as an example, the majority of evidence points towards them breeding somewhere in the Sargasso Sea. So the Sargasso is this sort of sea within a sea, which is probably closest to Bermuda. It's on the western side of the Atlantic. Now, in the sort of late 1800s, there was a Danish explorer called Johannes Schmidt, who basically worked his way backwards following smaller and smaller larval eels all the way back to where it looked like they were breeding, though they never found adults or eggs. So um, I think we should that... just mention that study because I think it is. It's just an amazing example of people going, 
We don't know. So so he went look like he basically went out and took water samples and whenever he found what looked like a baby eel, he kind of looked at how big it was. Just just take us through that process a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, basically he just went from the coast of Denmark, as you say, sort of worked his way back, throwing nets down until he found smaller and smaller and smaller eels. So, I mean, that's like probably four or 5,000 kilometres all the way from the Danish coast to the Sargasso Sea. But I think one of the amazing things is even to this day, I don't think we've really got much evidence beyond what he did. Those data sets that he collected are still incredibly important in focusing that pinpoint of, of where the eel might breed. And even with the advances of technology, where we're now tagging adult eels that are leaving freshwater to go to the Sargasso, that data around larvae is still incredibly important. And, and you know, there's still surveys that are going on by scientists now that are sort of replicating what he's doing by basically throwing nets into the water and hoping that they catch small larvae or eggs. I, lo- I love that study. I've, I've read that paper because I just love the idea of, well, the further west you went, the smaller they got. And therefore, logically, the smallest one is at the end. <laughs> that's the best you could do okay so so these little somewhere somewhere in the sargasso sea these little things are born what what do they look like the very earliest stage is called electrocephali and they're actually not long and thin like the eels that we might see in rivers and lakes electrocephali basically means leaf heads so they're very kind of wide shaped they look like a willow leaf basically and these passively migrate on the ocean currents basically being carried slowly over the period of about 18 months to two years back towards continental waters. Now that can be anywhere from Norway all the way down to the northern part of Africa, right into the Mediterranean and all the places in between. So there's a huge range of continental waters where you find the European eel, but that all starts in the Sargasso in this sort of slow passive migration of these leptocephali moving towards the east, towards um, towards Europe. And over that period, as they're feeding and growing, they do start to become more elongate. So by the time they reach estuaries and coastal waters, what you've got is what we call the glass eel, which is basically a see-through tiny eel as you'd expect it. So it's kind of long and thin, but it's probably only about five to 10 centimeters and totally see-through, hence the name glass eel. And how do they, how are they navigating? Because there are many, many mysteries about eels, but you've got these tiny little things, these little leaf-shaped things that they can find, they, they drift across on the current, but then somehow they've got to find fresh water. They get up onto the continental shelf. So by that point, presumably they're looking for a river of some sort. How do they know where to go? Well, I mean, this is a really good question. I mean, the question of navigation of eels at all sizes is one that's still sort of poorly understood. The current thinking is that it's actually the sort of chemical signature of fresh water piques their interest and they sort of know that they have to head towards that. By that point, there'll be a more active migration into rivers. And that often becomes tidal as well. So as you've got, once you hit the estuaries, the movement will be, there's a sort of settling when the tide is not to their favour. And then when it starts going back in, they will be sort of move with it. And so there's sort of an active active migration in. So they, they swim down to the bottom and tuck in when the tide's going the wrong way. And then when it turns, they'll pop up and then they get carried along and then they duck down again when it's good. So they're kind of stepping up the river. One of the things about eels that I think is most underappreciated in a very underappreciated species is this business of them going from saltwater to freshwater. Because basically, when an organism is in saltwater, it is doing everything. Like its entire biochemistry almost is designed around keeping salt out. 
And then you put something in fresh water and you need an entire biochemistry that is designed around keeping salt in. This is, this is an amazing transformation. Just talk us through what this, this sort of shift. I have to say that the, that sort of change tends to be more pronounced on the way out. On the way in, you know, the, the migration is generally quite slow. But once the eels are sort of ready to go back to the ocean, that change becomes incredibly pronounced. Once they sort of reach estuaries and sort of the, the bottom of freshwater systems when they're glass eels, they begin to take on the more eel form that we know. They'll have pigmentation. They're sort of basically a small coloured eel is what we call an elver. And that's again, the sort of basically the next step from glass eel between that and the sort of growth form. And the growth form is what we call a yellow eel, which is basically just an elver that has got bigger. And it's the yellow eel that I would say they probably spend most of their life as. And they will they will sort of hunker down in fresh water. And, and I mean, they can often be quite territorial. And once they find a spot they like, they will stay there quite a lot. That could be anywhere between sort of two, three, four years in the southern warmer parts of the range, up to decades once you get up into sort of the northern colder part of the range. And that also varies depending on the males and females. As I said before, the males tend to be a lot smaller and so there they will migrate back to breed probably a lot sooner than the females will because the females need to take on more fat stores. So even once they get into the yellow eel stages there's a huge amount of variation depending on their environment, the food availability, whether they're males or females. But it's the point after that that really sort of becomes the really mysterious part. And this is what we call silver eels. So this is where the, the eyes get bigger, the body changes to being very light on the belly, very dark on the back, sort of silvery gray color. Again, the, the, the physiology starts to change in order that they can then move back into the marine system, which is when they begin this sort of extraordinary migration back to their breeding ground. So this is after spending, so, you know, maybe a couple of years for the males, 10 years or more for the females. They've been pootling about as freshwater fish. And then the day comes for some reason when it's time. What happens then? What we do know is that generally they prefer to migrate on new moons, so it tends to be very dark, often after heavy rains, but generally it tends to be colder temperatures, often high flow, which is associated with these heavy rains, and it tends to be very dark as well. Some of the studies we've done have shown that the majority of the ones that we've caught have all gone on a single night. It's like, it's time to go we need to breed now and they just head down the river and then off to the ocean. Once they go past the continental shelf, pretty much all species of eels will show this very characteristic diurnal migration. So by that, I mean, they sort of move, they move downwards um, during the day and then move back up in the water column at night. It varies between species, but what you'll find is generally sort of the at night, they'll maybe reach depths of like 200 meters. And then during the daytime, they may drop to about sort of 700, 800 meters. So you get this very sort of um, slow sort of sine wave through the water. And this can go on for days and days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks. They just, again, our sort of understanding of why that happens is still quite limited. It's been suggested that it's probably to do with predator avoidance because we know now from these tagging studies that things like tuna, sharks and whales will all prey on large eels. It could be that this is part of the maturation process. It could also be to do with navigation. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions, especially when it comes to the marine part of the migration. 
And are they feeding as they go? They're not. That's another very good point. Once the eels start silvering, their gut actually starts to break down. So once they leave continental waters, they're really just focused entirely on migrating towards the breeding site and starting to create eggs and or sperm, depending on whether they're male or female. So if food swam in, literally swam into their mouth, they could not take it in. They have it no would, way to digest no good it. at all. Exactly, yeah. So, and then they are heading all the way back across the Atlantic, presumably going back to the Sargasso Sea to breed. Is that is that the idea? Yeah, unless anyone shows us anything else, that's our best guess at present. But I mean, in recent years, it's actually been quite interesting because um, there's been some studies done that have showed that perhaps magnetism plays a part in the migration. So we know that's the case for certain species like turtles and there's birds that we know that magnetism is important to. But studies in recent years have showed that both as yellow eels and as silver eels that and possibly yeah, even juveniles as well, that magnetism may actually um, play a part in, in how they navigate. And I think that's going to be sort of an interesting another part to the puzzle of how they how they move. But what the tagging studies have showed is that, you know, it's not it's not a straight line. Some of them take quite erratic pathways. Whatever they're using is often quite a crude mechanism. There's talk about whether they use things like seamounts as sort of way markers, but again, these are all theories at the moment with with no real evidence to support them. So, I mean, it sounds like an incredible, if you if we just summarise everything you've just said, you've got larvae that appear in the Sargasso Sea, they get carried all the way across the Atlantic, which is, you know, like thousands of miles. They can change their body form, they hang about in a river for two to 20 years, then they go back, which could take one or two years, all the way 5,000 miles back across the ocean and they're not very good at it. And somehow enough of them get to the other end after all of this in order to breed. Yeah, when you put it like that, it does sound absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? But I think one of the things that's really interesting is how do they all converge? Because Sargasso is a huge area, you know, it's thousands and thousands of kilometers squared. So the idea that they all converge in the same place, having left continental waters at different times, that's the bit that really blows my mind. It's like, how do they all converge in this one place to, to breed? This is where things like climate change can potentially have quite a significant effect on species like eels, because when they're reliant on things like sort of salt fronts, temperature fronts, and also for the juveniles, the currents, if those start changing as a result of climate change, then it could mean that, you know, it's harder for them to either get to fresh water systems or find the breeding areas that they rely upon. So the idea here is that there are actual physical features in the ocean that they can recognise. And we should just clarify the terms that when you're talking about a front, this is where two water masses meet. So basically, if you're navigating in the ocean, these are super distinctive features if you're a fish. This sort of very unlikely life cycle, you can imagine it working just about if there's lots of these eels around. But we don't hear great things about the, how healthy the eel population is these days. So how are they doing as a species, the European eel? Yeah, you're very right. It's it's certainly a really concerning situation. And again, that's sort of, I think, why it's something that particularly interests me, because, you know, when a species this hardy is in such a grave situation, I think it's sort of something that we've really got to pay attention to. Since the sort of early 80s, we've we've noted a continuous decline until maybe about 10 years ago of the recruitment, so the arrival of the juvenile eels to freshwater and coastal systems. 
probably about 10, 15 years ago, this, you know, th there was a lot of people sort of sitting up and sort of thinking, you know, this is, this is a sort of fairly continuous decline and it doesn't seem to be stopping. And I think this is something, you know, we, we really need to be paying attention to. 2011 was when we sort of reached the bottom was, that was a really concerning situation where in some cases the juvenile recruitment was about 1%, so it declined by 99%. And we're still at a point now where across Europe it's probably, depending on the years, it's kind of wobbling around the bottom at the moment. So it's probably somewhere between 1% and 10%, depending on where you are in the range of what it used to be. So we're still in a really concerning and critical situation. And, you know, if we're we're in this situation for eels, then we've really got to have some concern for a lot of other species and their associated habitats as well. Let's start with some of the threats, because I guess the most obvious one from what we've been saying, talking about is in the rivers, because it's not just that they've got to live in the river. They've also got to get to the right part of the river. And of course, we fill our rivers up with dams and locks and weirs. And what are the threats to eels when they're in the freshwater system? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, as you say, freshwater, I think, is very important as far as conservation is concerned, because obviously there's a lot of threats there, but it's also probably the only areas where we can actually intervene to make a difference. It's not like we can go to the ocean and suddenly change all the, the currents. So the barriers to migration through dams and locks and culverts and things like that is, is definitely a huge issue. Uh, you know, this varies across the range. In some places, you know, the available habitat has been reduced by sort of over 50%, which, you know, is, is hugely concerning. And if it's affected eels, it's going to be affecting other species as well. In recent years, we have started to see the advent of eel passes, which is great. Um, now, eel passes um, are different from your regular fish pass because of the fact that um, eels move in a very different way, have a different body shape. And so these are like sort of basically upturned brushes. We call them bristle passes. And it just gives them something to brace against as they're moving up and down the river. These eel passes are crucial to their survival. And what they are is kind of bridges going up the river to get from water that is downstream of a dam or a weir to upstream. So they're to help the eels across these barriers. They're designed for the juveniles that are also known as elvers, which are small enough to slide up the passes on their way further and further up the freshwater systems. So obviously I wanted to have a look at one of these. I put on my wellies and met up with Phoebe Shaw-Stewart, who's part of Zenocell's eel monitoring programme in London, so that I could splash about on a weir and actually have a look at how these eel passes work. So we are standing next to the quite noisy weir at Molesey, which is very near Hampton Court. And we are here to see some eels, hopefully, in the trap. So this is the upper end of the estuarine Thames, where we are. And you've got quite a big monitoring project. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, in fact, this is the largest elver and European eel monitoring project in a single catchment within the UK. It's a citizen science-based monitoring project, so we have multiple traps at barriers to migration where passes are suitable, which allow eels to travel over, and then we can safely trap them until we can count and measure them and then release them on. So your, your trap's just down there, is it? I'm peering over your shoulders to see if I can see it. <laughs> yes, yes, the trap is just down. It runs right down the edge of the weir. Probably when the elvers come along, they kind of 
um, hang around looking for a place to pass to get over the barrier which is naturally stopping them continue their upstream migration and at some point they might find the pass and they will come up this little kind of ladder system for them and then the, the trap is just in the middle of that they can continue up. Cool, let's go and have a look. Okay. We wandered down to the weir and that was a huge concrete step-like structure that crosses the river completely. It's structures like this that block eel migration. This is quite exciting. I've seen this weir for years and I've never got to walk on it. This is quite cool. <laughs> so I can see now there's a sort of metal chute almost that comes up from the lower part of the river mm-hmm. and it slopes up and it goes all the way up to the top but there's a sort of box on the way. Is that the trap? Yeah, exactly. So the whole tunnel all the way down has water flowing through it and these kind of brush-like substrate which uh, provides the ladder for the eels to come up and they can sort of grip onto it and climb up and over. And then this box in the middle is an easy trap for them to just sit in and wait until the volunteers are ready to come and... So they're all right to sit for a couple of days. Yeah, as long as the water is flowing through, it means they get plenty of fresh water and oxygen coming through and they're fine to be there for up to a few days. There's a cover on there to protect them from any birds and anything else that might want to. So so is there anything in it? Can we go and see? Yeah, let's go have a look. And there's a couple of volunteers here, Caroline and Liz, who are in charge of searching for eels. Yeah, so the water's really murky and you can't really see any eels until you um, start fishing for them. And we've got this big tank and we've got these little tubes in there which gives the eels somewhere to hide. So we take all these out first. Oh, so there's a sort of funnel thing. So yeah, once little... the eels have come up the funnel, they then can't, it's hard for them to get yeah, back down the other way. Yeah, they can't get out. Once they're in this funnel, they can't get out until we fish them out. Right. So we have to make sure we come regularly, otherwise they're stuck in there. I mean, they'll be fine, but they don't want to be in there for any length of time. You've actually got a net. We've actually got a net <laughs> and we'll have a little fish to begin with because they hide in all the corners. So the next thing we do, the eels aren't revealing themselves, is we actually take it apart because they might be stuck in the corner there and we can't get our net there. So <laughs> all right. we're actually going to lift it out. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this to be hunt the eel. Oh, well, it is, actually, yeah. <laughs> You know, they're very slippery and they're very tiny and they'll go in the corners. You know, they don't want to be caught by our nets. So this is where the detective work started. Liz and Caroline took the tank-like trap apart. So they took the lid off and they went digging around inside it with little fishing nets to see what was hiding down in the cracks and the crevices. And they actually had to search quite hard. They said eels are really good at hiding. And there was one crab and two little fish. But luck wasn't on our side. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be in luck today, which is a shame. No eel. But Caroline did have a trick up her sleeve, or more accurately, in her pocket, to show me how the monitoring works. I thought I was going to be excited to see an eel today, but actually I'm quite excited to see a fake eel. I did not know there were such things as fake eels, but apparently fishermen use them. So we we haven't got a real eel, so Caroline is going to show me with a fake eel what happens when you find one. Okay, so we want to count them and we want to measure them. So what we'll do is we have, it's all very technical, um, we have a... As you get your plastic bag Yeah, out. we have a plastic food bag here, and we'll put a little tiny bit of water in the bottom, and then we'll release them into the plastic bag. So the, the eel, even though it's a fake eel, the eel is, it's, it is long and thin, as you might expect. It's about the size of a pencil, perhaps, this one, so it's now sitting in the bottom of the plastic bag. And that's quite realistic for, the, for the, some of the eels that we found, maybe the bigger ones that we'll find, elvers that we find. And just that the real ones will be wiggling around a little bit more. So what we'll do is we just 
take our eel in our elver in our plastic bag, move the eel to the bottom of the bag, stop him wiggling around, getting him straight as possible, and then we measure the elver. This one is 100 145 millimetres long. And then we do that to every eel that we found. We'll count them, we'll measure them, and record them in our little notepad. And then when we get back, we record them online as well, so we know what we found. And we make a note that we found some crabs and a couple of fish as well, to add a bit of interest. Um, and then we'll release them upriver in a moment. Well, our fake plastic eel isn't going to get released, but you get the idea. Before we called it a day, I had some more questions for Phoebe about what scientists are learning about eels as they migrate through monitoring stations like this one. So the whole point of the Thames European Eel Monitoring Programme is to try and understand what the impacts of barriers are to the eel migration, to open up habitats by installing passes once we've found the evidence. And by doing that to date, we've opened up nearly 140 hectares of extra habitat to European eels in the Thames River Basin District. And we're also understanding the population dynamics and the recruitment of juvenile elver into the um, adult population in this area. And by gathering this evidence, we're hoping to increase and improve capacity for conservation of this species um, and other species who also use similar habitats and rely on eels as well. You have been speaking to and training volunteers. You get these people from the local community who perhaps didn't know anything about eels. What's the response of your volunteers? Yeah, absolutely. Eels are slimy, right? But uh, (laughs) it's remarkable, the response. I think that most people come initially out of fascination and trying to understand that eels are this sort of critically endangered eel species is calling these waters home. I think people are fascinated by that in the first instance. And then they come and they meet an eel, life, real life to life, and most people fall in love. I mean, it's, it is a true love affair that you fall down this rabbit hole. <laughs> or perhaps <laughs> slide down a river would be more appropriate. But the people adore eels, and you, once you're in the eel fan club, it's hard to escape. I was so excited to go and see an eel trap. I was so excited about potentially seeing an eel. But even though we didn't see one, it was brilliant to see the enthusiasm of these volunteers. It really is pretty hard not to join the eel fan club. I'm definitely in it. This really is a spectacular creature. It's such a shame that we tend to have associations with it that are not so friendly, perhaps, but I think we can change that. And there are increasing conservation efforts to make sure there's a healthy population of eels around in the future. But is this conservation enough? What does the future look like for this very special species? It was a question that I put to Matt. I mean, yeah, I I am hopeful I have to be. I can't imagine a world without them. I mean, it's not to say that the situation doesn't concern me enormously, but I do think that this isn't going to happen overnight. And it's been recognised that this is going to take decades. And I think that the EU, the UK government, they're committed to this species. And that I think that shift in the past sort of 10, 20 years has really been an important one. I think there's always more we can do. And I think a lot of it's about making sure that we are having the right conversations with the right people. So many people, when they think about threats to fish, will think about fishing. Now, fishing is a threat to eels, but it's not the only threat. And so, you know, a lot of this is about sort of increasing the narrative to include people like power companies, 
people that perhaps are putting pollutants into waters. Having the conversation about that and about the importance of a sort of holistic approach to conservation of eels. And again, I think those conversations are growing and growing across its range, but that's something that sort of still needs to continue. Thank you to Dr. Matt Gollock from the Zoological Society of London. Next time, we'll be looking at the broader connections between ocean systems and land systems. This is a critical interface, but perhaps it's rare for ecologists to study it. So we'll be looking at why that is, what the processes are that connect healthy islands to a healthy reef. So join us next time for that. Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts.